Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, here with my amazing co-host, Ellen McGirt. And today, we're going to be talking to Paul Hudson, CEO of the French pharmaceutical company, Sanofi. Yeah, it was a great conversation, Alan. You know, Paul took that job last September, so just over a year ago. And he told us that when he began, he embarked on a pretty intense listening tour, and he made sure to emphasize that he actually did listen to his employees. And his conclusion was that too many of them felt just too disconnected from the company's stated purpose, which is using breakthrough science to save and protect lives. So he started to look for really specific ways to tether their work to that purpose. Yeah, you know, Ellen, we saw him uh, uh, last year at the Fortune Global Forum in Paris when he was just beginning that journey, and it was so fascinating to hear him talk about it. I don't think he knew at the outset how key it was going to be, because just a few months after that, of course, the coronavirus hit, and the company now has two different vaccine candidates in clinical trials. But before that happened, Ellen, he said something that really stuck with me. He said it's a great time to be a CEO, that there's never been a better time to be a CEO. So I wanted to find out if, given everything that's transpired since then, if he still felt it was a great time to be leading a company. Of course I do, right? Look at, look at me. I, you know, I've just come from a meeting talking about we have our second vaccine for COVID that's gone in the clinic. You know, and I'm not sure how it would feel to be completely disconnected from working on solutions right now. You know, it's I'm privileged to to be leading an organization that is got 10,000 people in our vaccines group who are right now working seven days a week to try and bring something to help, you know, the entire planet. You know, how could I not feel the responsibility and privilege of that? That is that is what we do in some form or another, you know, every day. But this is the one time when everybody is united against one thing. And I think, you know, no, I, I hold it carefully in my hands, but I'm uh, really privileged to be doing that right now. But could we also talk a little bit about the headwinds that you may be facing in, in getting people to trust a vaccine? Yeah, and I, Ellen, if I can just add to that, I yeah. saw a, p- a poll last week, I think it was Morning Consult who did it, that showed that 50% of Americans say they won't, try, they won't take a vaccine. Stunning. So, you know, we've been making vaccines for over 100 years. We make uh, vaccines, we make about a billion doses of vaccine every year for people from yellow fever, rabies, polio, which most of you don't even talk about anymore in parts of Africa and, and far from places in the world, influenza, for hundreds of millions of patients and now COVID. We do it to an incredibly high standard, no compromise, at speed. And we do it because it's the right thing to do. It is part of the world we live in now that there will always be people that are with what you're doing or against what you're doing. We can only do our best to a very, very high standard. So we're doing that. We are setting a high bar on safety and efficacy. And, you know, we are trying to put as much as we can into education and into the clinical proof that people need to feel confident. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody, even those that were perhaps less enthusiastic about the industry, were like, we need a vaccine. And now that dialogue is moving to we need a safe vaccine. And by the end of the year, it'll move to we need a safe and effective vaccine. And they're right to ask that of us. 
That's the bar we hold ourselves to. Nothing else, no political timeline, no nothing. We just set a high bar. We've been doing it every year for over 100 years. This year is no different. But, Paul, if people won't take the vaccine, it doesn't matter how good it is or how safe it is or how efficacious it is. How do you deal with the social challenge? So, you know, as I said, we put a lot of time and energy into education. You know, every year, over half a million people die of influenza every single year, mainly the vulnerable and elderly with comorbidities, which sounds eerily familiar, by the way. And, you know, we're here now right in a, in a, a pandemic that people are starting to call a twindemic. You know, we've got people who are turning up to get a flu vaccine for the first time in their lives because they're starting to understand the population health implications of not doing that. Now, we need to work in partnership with multiple stakeholders, governments, regulators. Of course, we can't do it on our own. All we can do is create the vaccines to a very high standard and then work with those stakeholders to try and make them available for those that want to protect themselves. And if not just protect themselves, protect others. You're absolutely right. And just to, but to build on Alan's point, it's the education of people to understand that a vaccine is safe and that it's part of a global health plan but that it's available to them. You know, there's a huge difference between being able to be a, a low-income person, now a frontline person who's been exposed to COVID, whose communities are, are under siege, to go to a Walgreens or a CVS is something they can do. I think that a lot of the leaders that I'm talking to, and Alan and I are talking to, especially in the CEO initiative we're worried about, is can these people who don't have access to the kinds of healthcare that executives always have, what is the likelihood that they're going to be able to get access to a vaccine fast enough to make a difference? So, you know, we've, we've said all along, and it's an excellent point, but we've said all along, this is a race that we're happy to lose, particularly with COVID-19, because everybody needs to win. All of the vaccine makers holding you know, themselves to very high standards need to be able to be a success because the billions of doses needed to protect the planet is so huge yeah. that it's not a one company race. So when I read about some of the challenges that some of our other vaccine makers are facing over the last weeks, you know, I want them to do well. I, I want it to be a success because we may make a billion doses, but, you know, the planet needs eight, nine, 10 billion. So we right. need everybody to show up because if we don't, we won't. And I know my CEO colleagues, I can tell you there is, it's like a hotline to each other of how can we help? What do you need? Uh, what can we do? You know, it is as close as we'll ever get at our level to being sharing a common purpose. And, and it, it's, it's the wow. right thing, right? Yeah, it's the right thing. You know, wow. and, and, and Paul, I, I, I believe that because we talk to those people as well. Alex Gorski, Albert Borla, yeah. uh, the folks at Moderna. Uh, but but it wasn't always that way. I mean, to hear you say, I want my competitors to do well. I really wish them well. That's That was not standard <laughs> standard thinking in the pharmaceutical industry prior to this pandemic. And what I wonder is if this incredible era of partnerships and collaborations uh, that we're in right now in pursuit of defeating the virus will continue once the virus is gone, because we've got a lot of other healthcare challenges out there, right? We, we've got cancer to deal with. We've got other infectious diseases. Have we learned something here that can last? You know, I think we have. I hope we have. I think, you know, how we're changing the way we work in our company 
um, and the things that we'll want to keep after the crisis um, is the same of how we work, you know, outside of our company with our partners, other companies, stakeholders. Look at the regulators. You know, we're working with the FDA and the EMA and doing things in 24 hours that used to take one to two years. We would love the same urgency and appetite to collaborate and to accelerate for cancer, as you said, for other very difficult diseases. And I think in many ways it will. I think in many ways we're going to see a situation where people are saying, I'm just going to pick up the phone and ask if we can move faster. And I think the collaborative spirit will stay. Don't get me wrong. We love to compete too. There's nothing better um, than companies competing in a fair way to make sure that it improves education and awareness of illnesses that then drive uh, the affordability towards a patient's benefit. That's good as well, right? That's not a bad thing. But I think where I think we've learned that if there is a moment to collaborate, it can be done. It can be done in the right way for the right reasons. And, you know, I believe, you know, I believe passionately that that's the case. I've very much appreciated the support offered to me by my peers, and and I hope they would feel the same. Has this changed the way you're actually manufacturing vaccines? Has there been rapid innovation in that as well? I'd read a little bit about your Framingham facility, and I'm I'm curious if the if the actual manufacturing facilities are changing. We're going through a transformation in the company, and you know we're looking at everything from manufacturing right through to the laboratory and innovation and. We've been able to put a lot of that at work in play. You know, it shouldn't be lost to many people that we're the only vaccine maker that has discovered in-house and developing a vaccine for COVID-19. Everybody else is in a partnership or some description, you know, mm-hmm. and developing a vaccine on a platform that has already yielded approved vaccines before. So the probability of our success is high because we've done it before using this technology before. To that end, we've used some of our state-of-the-art facilities to make sure we can reach the capacity. Framingham is one of our, we call it almost the factory of the future. Totally modular, data-driven. We take almost a billion individual pieces of data every single day in that facility to make sure that we can have uh, batches approved as they come off the line rather than waiting for weeks for a quality inspection afterwards. We are really doing something that I think very few other companies have been able to achieve. And we're using it real time and showing our agility in vaccines. But it goes beyond that. What we're going to do, we hope, for Parkinson's disease, for Mm. multiple sclerosis, for haemophilia A and B, for early breast cancer. The transformation goes right across our organization, manufacturing, innovation, science, how we operate commercially. It's a there's quite the culture revolution going on in the company and and manufacturing is not excluded from that. Yeah, let's talk about that a little more. I mean, Matt, again, going back to the comments you made uh, in Paris at the Fortune Global Forum last November, part of what you were excited about was how these new technology tools, the availability of data and, and data analysis were going to revolutionize uh, medicine. I mean, you, you, you're a year on now. Are, are you still as optimistic about where we're headed in terms of our ability to confront diseases? You know, I am. And what I've learned myself over the last year is, you know, um, there are there are two ways companies are approaching the data challenge. One is huge partnerships with the Googles and Microsofts and others, which are fantastic. But there's also what are you doing with the data you already have? We have, I think, something like 600 million patient data points on uh, patients that used to be in clinical studies. 
And we have the anonymized data and we can go looking for that data for clues, for new targets, for new medicines. It's right across the spectrum for us. The use of machine learning, artificial intelligence, automation in finance, all the way through to the laboratory is changing everything. And I perhaps, uh, Alan, had underappreciated the opportunity. I was excited, but I hadn't realized what it's like when you really look deeply at your data architecture in your company and spend time building the interoperability components and allowing you to do things that people never thought possible before. And we want our people, our excellent people, working on insights and innovation, not on Excel and data aggregation. You know, that's just not needed anymore. Let's put their brains on what does it mean rather than where is it and how do I connect it? That's just back to the purpose-driven nature. I noticed uh, our people in the company, they want more opportunities to add value and they want to spend less time doing transactional work. And why the hell not, right? And so that's what that gets us when we get into the deeper into this stuff. And that's what transforms cultures. That's what accelerates science. And, you know, that's what's making us proud. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, there's a tremendous amount of fear out there at a time like this. And the normal tendency for people faced with fear is to either freeze or to panic. How do leaders deal with those conflicting impulses? It's essential to maintain the trust of your people and your external stakeholders. You have to demonstrate in a circumstance like this that health comes first. And you have to demonstrate that whatever message you're delivering is credible and grounded in the real facts. It's okay to say, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. People don't expect us as CEOs to have a crystal ball. They do expect us though to deliver straight talk that enables everyone to understand how this could play out and how each of those paths could affect both the company and them individually. And it really is important to have a compelling vision for the future that's inspiring, but doesn't appear to paint over the difficult present circumstances. You have to acknowledge and own how challenging the current circumstances are to earn the right to speak to a more optimistic future in a way that instills confidence. Good advice, Joe, thanks. Great thoughts as always. Wonderful to be with you, Alan. It's the premise of this podcast that your experience coming in a year and a half ago, uh, trying to reinstill purpose into your organization is not a one-off, that there is more and more of this happening in business. And that was part of what was behind the business roundtable changing its uh, definition of the purpose of corporation last summer. Ellen and I get to hear these amazing stories on a regular basis. Do you think we are in some sort of a, a, a renaissance in how business operates? Do you feel, talking to your colleagues, that something is afoot that's qualitatively different from the past? Yeah, I do, actually. I believe that. I think there is a moment where leading has taken on a much more, um, a much deeper uh, relationship than just uh, posters of our purpose by the elevator. <laughs> you know, there are many organizations I'm sure making a few people cringe, and I've been there myself, where the values, behaviors, and purpose are written on beautifully produced documents by the elevator. But does it really feel different for the people? 
in the organization. And I'm a year plus in, and, you know, I judge us more by do our people feel closer to the purpose for sure. Do they feel we make decisions that support truthfully and authentically that we're all trying to move in that direction? Do we want to change the practice of medicine? Do we want to use data to help us do that? Do we want to create a better experience for the people in here? Do we want to make sure that people feel they can be the best version of themselves, whatever that is, whatever that is? And they know very quickly whether you're consistent about these things. And if you're not consistent, that news travels faster than it's ever traveled before. And for me, that is not a bad thing. That is the reality. When you ask me, are we at a tipping point? I say we are, and I'm glad that we are. We have a moment to do it the right way. And it'll take some time, right? It's not overnight. But if we're determined, then it's less about the poster and more about the proof points. And that's what people expect of us now. And I, I'm up for that. I think our organization, by the way, is right over the edge of its skis, the tip of its skis, wanting that. I don't think we're alone in the desire for that new way of being. I think that is the right way to be. And, I, and it's more fun, right? Last point I'll make, it's an important point for me. If you'd have asked me in Paris last December what a good culture looks like, I would have told you, you know, Alan, come back two to three years. I'm going to be able to show you these great examples. It's going to feel different. It's going to look different. And four months later, I saw the culture that I was hoping to get to five years from now. Mm. Because four months later, entirely purpose-driven, working remotely, we stripped back the job to its essentials and everybody just got on with the things that would be in the best interests of health. And, uh, you know, we're seeing people operate at the absolute top of their game four months after, after the Paris meeting. And so now my job is actually, how do we stay at that level? Right. And as a new CEO, it's never that way around. It's never that way around. It's always the other way around. Uh, but you normally you are. Normally you are, but you know, we had this pandemic and it just mobilized the entire organization. And from that came, came a moment to say to everybody, let's see you at your best. Meetings that would have had 15 people in them. When you jumped on Zoom had five. People stripped it back, not to those that should be invited because of the politics of inviting them. It was, well, let's just get the people on the phone. And then the accountability went up because you can't walk in somebody's office and say, hey, how's that project going? People have got to do what they committed to because if they don't, we're not going to be able to chase you. And so everybody just brought their A game. And I think that's the fascinating, the fascinating piece about this, which is why I look forward to the future of work and what it will mean for transformational science for so many. And, you know, I wish I was starting my career now. I wish I was starting my career here now because the opportunities are just so much bigger, broader, and and more accelerated than I knew when I was starting out. Yeah, Uh, you pulled it all together beautifully. Thank you so much, Paul Hudson, for joining us on Leadership Next. Thank you. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala. Written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media.
Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes.